The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to welcome my guest, Dr. David Wiss. He is a Los Angeles-based, award-winning fellow registered dietitian who specializes in nutrition and mental health. His website, wisemindnutrition.com, features information on nutrition as it applies to adverse child experiences, disordered eating, food addiction, depression, trauma-informed care, resilience in recovery, and much more. In 2013, Dr. Wiss founded Nutrition in Recovery, a group practice of dietitians who specialize in the treatment of eating and substance use disorders. Dr. Wiss received his bachelor's in social science from the University of Southern California, a master's in nutrition, dietetics, and food science at California State University at Northridge, and he completed his dietetic internship at UCLA, where he received specialized training on their eating disorders unit. In 2022, he received his PhD at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health, where he broadened his education to include health psychology, and he investigated the links between adverse childhood experiences and various mental health outcomes among socially disadvantaged men. Welcome, Dr. Wiss. Oh, I'm so privileged to be here. You've had such a great impact on my field, our field, in my career. Thank you for carrying the torch and talking about such important issues for so many years. Well, thank you. I think that your specialized area of expertise could not be more necessary now. These are such dark times for so many of us. We've been disconnected because of the pandemic. We are so divided as a society. We see the statistics on childhood mental health and They are depressing. So I think as a society, we are suffering. And nutrition, of course, we both look at food as medicine. And I don't think that food has been emphasized enough in its healing power. So I am thrilled to bring your voice to our listeners. I want to know how you became interested in looking at mental health and its connection to nutrition. Yeah, great question. I think I'll, I'll start off by saying that with a lot of the darkness and the difficulties in the world comes a lot of shifts. And there's definitely paradigm shifts happening with respect to social justice, how we view food, and how we view nutrition. So amidst the current crises, I think there's a lot of hope for awakenings on the horizon. Me personally, I have a personal journey that I get to tell a lot, and it seems people ask me about it often. I can say that I grew up in Los Angeles. I definitely come from a genetic legacy of alcoholism and chronic disease. So I had my fair share of health challenges, including mental health challenges, substance use disorder. And I had a revolution in my health and in my life in 2006 when I was able to find uh, what we call recovery. And I use nutrition as a big part of my 
awakening and my entry into a new chapter. Nutrition changed, not just the way that I looked, but the way that I felt and the way that I navigated the world. It impacted my relational health, my ability to feel like I could stand in my own brand of dignity. And it changed my energy and my vibrations in a way that absolutely pointed me toward my career and future direction. So I ended up doing a master's degree in nutrition, focusing on nutrition for substance use and got into food addiction and eating disorders, got really into advocacy, which is where I learned about your work and looking at things in a larger global context, considering food environments and contextual factors that impact eating behavior and access to food. And then the world of the gut microbiota started to emerge on the scene, which really substantiated the conversation around nutrition for mental health. And I can say that sometimes nutrition gets a really bad rap because most people think about it in a quantitative way. It's just about calories and macronutrients and fitness and and weight loss. And, you know, when I spoke of this paradigm shift, this awakening that's happening, I think people are starting to understand the healing properties of food, food as a interaction with the ecosystem that lives in our gastrointestinal tract, and really starting to think about food as a profound interaction with nature on a daily basis, as opposed to something quantitative, starting to think about it more qualitatively, which really opens up the conversation around nutrition for mental health, going beyond just addictions and substance use disorders and eating disorders and thinking about the role of nutrition in depressive symptoms, anxiety, trauma, and the rest. It's funny that you mentioned how we've been thinking about nutrition all these years and the journey that we've all taken and how we look at it. The last time we got together professionally in person was in Philadelphia, and you gave a special presentation for dietitians in integrative and functional medicine. And I have my notes from that talk. But you talked about how if you're going to count anything, we don't want to be counting calories and grams of this and grams of that. But you said, if you're going to count anything, count fiber. Why? Oh, that's one of my favorites. Thank you for that question. I think the public health data that we have suggests that the average intake in terms of grams of fiber is less than half of what it should be for optimal gut health, which we know is linked to brain health. So when I say out with the quantitative approaches to nutrition, it leaves a little bit of room for people to have some quantitative targets with respect to fiber. And I think the food industry learned that people were searching for higher fiber intakes as the data started to emerge about gut bacteria harvesting this in creating other postbiotics like short chain fatty acids, et cetera. And they started supplementing food with fiber supplements and people started reaching for the fiber one bars and the enhanced cereals. And I think it's so important to teach people to get fiber from real food, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds, because there is a synergy between the fiber that's in food and the polyphenols that are in plant foods and the vitamins and minerals that you can't recreate through supplements. So one of the most important things we do in the domain of nutrition for mental health 
is try to get people to be more fiber friendly, slowly increase the grams of fiber without necessarily needing to count them and get someone really above that 30 grams of fiber per day. Everyone's different. So recommendations are going to vary. Some people do very well on a much lower amount and other people can get as, as much as twice that much. So I think if there was one nutrition intervention that could warrant very specific and deliberate quantitative approaches, it would be getting those grams of fiber up and putting a emphasis on soluble fiber, such as those that come in beans and oats and other plant foods. Yeah. And didn't I see a statistic lately reported that about 70% of our nation's calories come in the form of highly processed food? And when I say highly processed, I mean really low in fiber. Yeah, I think that would be the real detriment of ultra processed food. A lot of times people like to identify sugar, salts, and fats and some of the added ingredients as the main problem of ultra processed food. But as you pointed out, I think we also need to think about what's been removed. So when food is processed, oftentimes it is the fiber that's removed. A lot of really sensitive phytonutrients are lost during processing. So ultra processed food isn't just about adding nutrients that make it more palatable, but also all the things that have been lost. And I think that's a really important question. What is missing in these Mm -hmm. foods? Well, if people want to learn more about this particular topic, they can go to wisemindnutrition.com where you have a host of articles on this and many other topics. But I want to bring something forth that relates to your work. And it has to do with individuals with mental health challenges. We're happy to talk about broken bones or physical impairments, but mental health is something that we don't feel comfortable as a culture addressing. Mm. And what we've done as a society is rather than having compassionate institutions where people with mental health challenges might be cared for, we have seen that we've been putting people with mental health challenges into jails and prisons. Mm. And I had a chance to look at prison and jail menus recently. And when I look at your recommendations for improving mental health, I don't see any of them present in the institutions that we have today that are housing individuals with mental health challenges. Mm. Thank you for pointing that out. I remember in 2011, there was a paper that came out, I believe it was in the UK that showed supplementation with omega-3 in the form of fish oil reduced aggression on prison yards. And I remember seeing that paper and thinking, wow, this is a huge finding. I wonder what's going to happen as a result of these conclusions. And lo and behold, I don't believe anything changed anywhere. So I like to be a very positive thinker with respect to nutrition, but I also think it's wise to point out that nutrition is one of the major unspoken tools of oppression in our society. And it's definitely a way that oppressed groups are continued to become oppressed and stay marginalized in the prison population. The uh, population of those with substance use disorders are all perfect examples. I do want to acknowledge that institutional food service is a challenging thing. And so I've definitely worked in some settings where I learned about the difficulties with serving food to lots of people at one time. So I want to be sensitive to those needs while also recognizing that we could do much better. 
Absolutely. And I think we are starting to see institutions like there are some hospitals, for example, that have farms on site where patients are able to get the benefits of truly fresh foods. So more of that, please, as we move forward and how we can change the world for better. Mm. I want to bring something forth. You have looked at trauma-related care and experiencing trauma, and you have a section on your website that looks at food insecurity. And I remember learning how food insecurity in itself is a form of trauma. Do you Mm. want to talk about that at all? Yeah, thank you. It's such an important question. There's been a lot of emphasis on adverse childhood experiences, what people call ACEs. And I think that the original ACE study was very limited in the fact that it looked at adverse childhood experiences in the household, specifically those that fall under the domain of child maltreatment. So abuse and neglect, as well as those that fall under the domain of household dysfunction, parent Uh, living with mental illness, using drugs, going to jail or prison, and parents being separated. And it took many years for investigators and trauma researchers to understand the importance of looking at that, not just at the household level, but in the community. So we call these expanded ACEs, thinking about people that were exposed to community violence, bullying, uh, the experience of discrimination based on race, gender, et cetera. And there's a lot of other adverse childhood experiences that can happen in the local community rather than just the household. But then more recently, we've thought about, well, what about other adverse childhood experiences that occur in the household, like adverse food-related experiences. So there's definitely dynamics in certain families where food is used as reward, as punishment, or there is insufficient food, food insecurity. Maybe there's shame about using food assistance. And I think that the world of adverse food-related experiences is going to open up a lot of good research questions, particularly in the domain of eating disorders. And so I do want to recognize that the original ACE research did recognize potential food insecurity, having unstable sources of food, clothes, et cetera. But looking at food insecurity as a form of trauma in the early life that can affect not only mental health outcomes, but one's relationship to food is super, super important. We have some data to show links between food insecurity and eating disorders, as well as food insecurity and what we call food addiction. Yeah. David, we've got to take a break because we're halfway through. And I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. David Wiss. He is based in Los Angeles, but his work is nationwide. He's an award-winning registered dietitian. His specialty is nutrition and mental health. I wanted to get back to something that you said about adverse food-related experiences and how they can have a long-term impact. And so much of what we hear, the language that is used, is that if you're overweight, for example, obesity is related many times to adverse childhood experiences. But if a person presents as being obese, Many times, even in the healthcare setting, we'll hear people say, well, it's just because you're making poor choices. You know, it's this personal problem that you have. But I think you do a beautiful job in recognizing the role of 
the biopsychosocial model of health and disease. Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, it's a beautiful framework that was introduced in the late 70s and early 80s by Dr. Engel. And it's a way of thinking in terms of systems. So in the medical model, there's an emphasis on biology, the sort of biomedical reductionistic model. And I think a lot of people are aware that that lacks a lot of really important context in that just looking at things in a purely biological context is very much missing the larger and important picture. So introducing the psychosocial components includes the psychology of health, the way people experience meeting with their provider, the way people think about themselves in the context of society. And of course, there's a whole field of health psychology, especially with the context of eating. We think about the experience of weight stigma, the experience of dieting or restrained eating. And then in public health, what we do is put everything into social context. So this is when you consider environmental factors. So if you were to take a condition such as trauma, you would start to think about the biological embedding of adversity. So the specific pathways in which childhood adversity can alter one's physiology. You would start to think about the psychological impact, the way someone ascribes meaning, the subjective experience, the way someone made sense out of that, um, the different thought processes that emerge through the trauma. And then you put it into social context and think about how it can impact relational health, how it can affect someone's ability to form social ties and be a part of a community. And so the biopsychosocial model is truly a multidisciplinary effort to merge these different academic disciplines that are often siloed and bring them all together and, and use larger conceptual frameworks. And it's been utilized in psychiatry and in mental health and certainly in academic disciplines like public health and sometimes in epidemiology, et cetera. And it's a just a powerful way of thinking about things more broadly and not being limited to one particular point of view. If you think about microbiologists or molecular scientists, they're seeing the world through the lens of mechanisms. And then we have psychologists who think about the mind rather than the brain and then sociologists. And like, what if everyone could get together and start thinking about these things systematically. I think we'd make a lot of progress with conditions like eating disorders, addictions, the experience of living in a larger body, and so many more conditions. So it really is about collaborative efforts to understand health. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And compassion and mm. having, having a sense of caring for our fellow human beings yes. would be a nice start. I've often thought that of all my years of practice, what people are hungriest for are connections. And I truly believe that community, that sense of community, that sense of belonging, being accepted, however we are, and being loved is really at the core of so many other problems. I couldn't agree more. I think that we're in an era of disconnection. We've got this technology that's creating connections in some ways and disconnections in others. And you know, I've done some research on drug use, and one of the major findings that we discovered 
is that those who have higher levels of social support have less drug use. And I think when people get into recovery, whatever that means, whether it's trauma, uh, eating disorders, addictions, is being around like-minded individuals, perceiving that those people are helpful is such an important part of any reintegration process. And I've always made the argument that the farmer's market and the co-op, I go to a co-op here in Santa Monica, I'm in West Los Angeles, these are important places to visit because these are places that are in the community. And I think people are moving toward ordering food online and getting meal delivery and all these other options. And I think it's, it's just leading to an inherent lack in connectedness around food and community. I love connecting with my local grocers and asking someone to make me a juice at the, at the juice bar and saying thank you. And those little parts of the healing picture have been totally overlooked. And I just want to acknowledge you for not being someone who overlooks these things, who points to the value of real food and connection with community as an important part of the collective healing that we so desperately need in our world today. Thank you. I wonder if we can maybe get into some nitty gritty therapy. So what would it be like if I came to your office and I said, Dr. Wiss, I just feel like these days I have a lot more anxiety and depression. What would you recommend to me? Yeah, great question. I think before anyone even gets to that point uh, of seeing me in the office, I've had someone fill out a lot of forms that look at health and health behavior. So I already have some really good insight into what's going on. You know, I do practice nutrition, so I do tend to provide education related to some of these mental health outcomes, but I also recruit other experts like psychiatrists and psychologists, therapists when there's a need. But if I were to look at something like depression or anxiety, I would really consider the biopsychosocial approach, which would mean I would first think about potential biological drivers starting in the gut. I think there was this monoamine hypothesis of depression that really focused on neurotransmitter dysfunction and especially serotonin, which led to a lot of the medications that are on the market. And there's a lot of other biological causes and consequences of depression. And I think the most noteworthy one is inflammation and oxidative stress. We know that low-grade systemic inflammation that can accumulate over time has the potential to cross or disrupt the blood-brain barrier. Most people are familiar with the term leaky gut. We now have this term leaky brain to describe what happens after long-term exposure to an immune system that isn't working optimally. And there's a hot topic, which I've become very interested in called neuroinflammation. And this is the potential for inflammation to pass this blood brain barrier by way of microglia and other astrocytes and other mechanisms that we're learning much more about and to lead to changes in the brain. So depression also is associated with certain structural and functional brain changes, anhedonia, which is related to uh, reward and the dopamine system. And so when we were thinking about the biology, I would point to interventions that could be helpful in terms of anti-inflammatory eating, moving people toward Mediterranean style eating. Everyone's different. Some people might need to do some blood work to look at their specific potential causes of inflammation. 
And then again, the psychology of eating, the psychology of life. How do we bring in more joy into the process of being an eater? How do we get someone to get back in the kitchen and get excited about making food for themselves and for their people in their lives? I encourage people to get sunlight and get sleep and do the entire intervention on a entire physical dimension of wellness. And of course, thinking about social context, like what are sources of excitement and joy. And, you know, one of the biggest things I do with people, because I'll say this, nutrition education is helpful, right? You could tell someone about biological mechanisms, provide recipes. These are things I do all day long. But one of the most impactful things that I'm able to do is get people excited about going to the grocery store, cooking meals, and using it as a meditative and healing process. So most people are familiar with this domain of mindful eating. I sometimes teach people about soulful eating and getting back to nature and using meditation and using other mind-body practices like yoga to cultivate gratitude and just connect to the plants and be excited about entering a new chapter and being able to face the world. I never pretend like nutrition is a sole intervention for depressive symptoms. But I can say that this year, we have a systematic review that was published by O'Neill and colleagues in the Nutrients Journal, which looked at all of the randomized control trials of dietary interventions on depression. And these were studies that used food, not supplements, but used food to improve symptoms of depression without being focused on any weight-related outcomes. So this is just singing my song, right? This particular paper looked at all seven randomized control trials, and guess what was found? All seven of them showed significant improvements in depressive symptoms. So there are people that have depression with other etiology. Perhaps it is more based in the neurochemistry related to serotonin, and people respond well to those medications, particularly the SSRIs. But there's a lot of people who don't respond well to SSRIs and need to think about nutrition, exercise, and other forms of wellness. And I think nutrition is going to get a lot of spotlight now that we have accumulating evidence to show that dietary interventions can actually be helpful. But my fear is that it'll be much like our earlier discussion where we get a finding, we know something helps, but it just doesn't fit well into the medical model and it falls under the wayside. So I would like to recruit other people who are willing to have these conversations. There's a growing field called nutritional psychiatry. Interestingly, uh, but not surprisingly, these scholars are much more prevalent in countries outside of the U.S. So we need some vocal leaders here in the U.S. to start talking about the links between nutrition and mental health. Well, we're running out of time, but I have to just bring forth something that you said again in Philadelphia that connects everything that you've been talking about. And it has to do with changing the way we teach about food education. And you called for culinary literacy with an emphasis on hands-on nutrition, in other words, cooking. And you've got a great feature on your Wise Mind Nutrition website and it's anti-inflammatory herbs and spices. And I dove right into that article and I thought, I want to see what herbs and spices you're recommending and how I can incorporate more of those into my diet. So again, that website is www.wisemindnutrition.com. I will provide a link to that. 
David, in wrapping up, do you want to give us one last message? Yeah, I, I'm so glad you found that page because there's a bunch of downloadable recipes there as well. So thank you for finding that. And I encourage all our listeners to just learn more about the link between nutrition and mental health and be a part of the collective healing. Thank you so much. We've got to close. So I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KFPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. David Wiss, registered dietitian who specializes in nutrition and mental health. Thank you again for being my guest. Thank you so much. Thank you.